Today from the Global Lane, civil war coming? Hezbollah's terror chief vows revenge on Lebanon's Christians. Nasrallah does have the backing of much greater powers than him when he makes threats. They are not empty. Tempers flare online and in the air. American anger rising. There's no end of provocations. We need to go in search of some way to make a workable country out of it. AI and high tech dominating our lives. Who will rule the new gods? We have these machines emerging and people are beginning to worship those machines. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. Is civil war coming to the Middle East? Tempers are raging and violence is rising in the tiny biblical nation of Lebanon. Seven people were killed when gunfire erupted in Beirut. It came after Hezbollah and Amal militia members rallied against a Christian judge who's leading an investigation into the August 2020 Beirut port explosion. Well, joining us to explain what this may mean for Israel, the United States, and the Middle East is Greg Roman. He's director of the Middle East Forum. Greg, it's good to talk with you again. So please give our viewers some context here. Why this recent violence? And it is, is it the start of another Lebanese civil war? I think the most honest and reliable person in Lebanon today is Judge Tarek Bitar. He is the individual who has been leading an inquiry into the devastating Beirut port explosion that took place a little over a year ago, when one third of the city of Beirut was almost leveled, not due to an intentional act by any uh, surreptitious forces where they would, might have blamed Israel or they may have blamed the United States, but because of the sheer incompetence of the previous Lebanese government that had decided to stockpile tons of ammonium nitrate next to a fireworks factory, and eventually a chain reaction set that blast off, which when you looked at it, you could have not mistaken, perhaps mistaken it, for a small nuclear device. Now, a year and a half later, after the query has really started moving forward, and Judge Bitar is moving forward with trying to indict, investigate, prosecute, and eventually bring to justice those officials who are being investigated for acts of gross negligence, all of a sudden, because of the fact that the main minister who would have been implicated in this act came from a Hezbollah-related political party, we now see members of the Hezbollah terror organization marching again on the streets of Beirut, threatening other Lebanese minority communities. The main target of their ire is the judge who's investigating their political allies. Now, this has not stopped Judge Mitar from going forward. And a coalition crisis under interim prime minister Najib Mikati has now led to the point where Hezbollah is calling for blood for those who are only defending themselves on the street of Beirut in those attacks which took place last week. So right now we're on the precipice of, I don't want to say it's going to be a civil war, but definitely an ethnic action that may take place, or an ethno-religious action that may take place as Hezbollah is looking for revenge. And, and it seems like Sunni and Druze and Christians are united in this against uh, Amal and, and uh, Hezbollah this week. Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah threatened Samir Jaja's Lebanese forces, saying Hezbollah has 100,000 fighters ready to take up arms. Is Nasrallah miscalculating, or is this just political theater? I think at the end of the day, Nasrallah is speaking from a position of strength. It's not just that he has 100,000 fighters. He also has the support of Syria and Iran backing him. So before anything happens with trying to find a way in which to get out of this mess that Hezbollah has currently found itself in after having lost seven of its 
uh, terror organization, or seven of its supporters of the terror organization on the streets of Beirut last week. You have to take into context that Nasrallah does have the backing of much greater powers than him when he makes threats. They are not empty. And, and he still has tens of thousands of missiles on the southern border uh, targeting Israel and communities across the border. Uh, if extensive fighting begins, how likely is Hezbollah to attempt to draw the IDF into the fray by attacking Israel? Well, this has happened twice in the past, once in the 1976 beginning of the Lebanese Civil War and also in the 1982 uh, first Lebanon war between Israel and uh, Lebanon. It was really between the Palestinians and Lebanon and Israel. But that was where the Hezbollah movement was born, out of that first round of fighting. Now, I think that you have to take into context that if Nasrallah has to face Sunni, Druze, and Christian opponents locally, and he tries to deflect by letting off the Lebanese rocket valve, or the Hezbollah rocket arsenal, which can act as a pressure valve for him, by launching attacks against Israel, Israel has threatened to turn southern Lebanon into a parking lot. This is just something that was said by a top IDF general, where he estimated that an excess of 2,000 rockets could be expected per day to land on Israel in a future Lebanon-Israel conflict. And it won't be a war between Hezbollah and Israel. It'll be a war between the state of Lebanon and Israel, since Hezbollah effectively controls Lebanon. So Nasrallah is playing with fire if he thinks that he has the ability to threaten Israel, to even attack Israel and to get away with it. I'm not sure how the other ethnic groups and religious groups factor into this. But if they see an opportunity to fell Hezbollah, they may sit this conflict out if it ever happens with Israel and let Israel do the hard work. I think all those groups are uh, just tired of it all. Okay, Greg Roman, director of the Middle East Forum, thank you for sharing your thoughts with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Why are Americans so angry? It seems that anger and rage have overtaken our culture, politics, and public discourse. Here with more about what to do about it is Peter Wood. Mr. Wood is the president of the National Association of Scholars. His latest book is Wrath, America Enraged. Peter, it's good to talk with you about this. So why are Americans so angry and enraged in 2021? Well, I think the immediate provocations were the presidential election in 2020 and the uh, riot in the American Capitol on January 6th. 2021, but there's no end of provocations that are playing a part in this. Uh, the uh, arrival of large numbers of people on our Mexican border, uh, the backing up of ships off the uh, West Coast and East Coast trying to deliver goods here, the unleashing of inflation into the mainstream economy, our uh, disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, well, there's others, but that'll do for a start. Each of these has brought the temper of mainstream Americans to a near boil. Not, not to mention the pandemic and those lengthy shutdowns and people losing their jobs, uh, businesses. In your book, you contend that Americans have always possessed a certain degree of anger and discontent, starting, I guess, with the Boston Tea Party, the Revolutionary War. Uh, George Washington had a temper, but you write he bound it with the steel hoops of a code of respect for other people. You say American society is different now. There's a new anger. So how does this new anger differ from the old anger? Our anger was something that we fought against in ourselves from early on in American life. We realized that you couldn't really develop a 
community that could live in peace with itself if you license people to be angry all the time. So we developed early on a pretty strict code that said that giving vent to anger too easily or too often or too uh, viciously was going to be a mark of a person who was not adapted to social life. So such people were scorned, they were reprimanded, children were raised to control their tempers, husbands and wives learned to get along with each other by putting anger to the side. We couldn't always live up to these codes, of course, but the fact was that they were codes, that we had a response to the person who was too much angry too much of the time. All of that began to change after World War II. Um, it's an interesting historical set of developments that today we don't spend too much time on, but it's worth remembering that it was around then that Freudian psychoanalysis made its uh, beachhead in America. And what did it teach? It taught that being angry and repressing it was a cause of neurosis. You shouldn't repress your anger. It would come back as some form of mental illness, mild or severe. How has this played out now in our culture? What effect have movies, television, mm -hmm. music, social media had on helping to create and foment what you call this anger culture? Right. It's been an avalanche of uh, first popular culture and then into our politics starting in the 1990s. I'd say the first real burst of what I call new anger on the political scene came during George Bush's presidency when uh, there were political commentators avowedly declaring their hatred of him. A flamboyant, self-regarding, prideful form of anger on the political left took real form then. Uh, along with the social media, which gave people a immediate uh, feedback to their anger. They could express outrageous opinions and get attaboys from other people reading them. Um, we began to become a culture that celebrated anger to the point where there was no relief from it. It entered into a 24-hour cycle of uh, expressing our hatred of one another. Then enter Donald Trump. And right. you mentioned a quote from Kamala Harris before she was elected vice president. It's from June 2020, where she responds to a question about Black Lives Matter and Antifa riots. Tell us about that and how comments from politicians from both sides of the aisle, even Donald Trump, have added fuel to this wrath that you talk about. Well, let me start with Donald Trump. Um, back when I first started writing about anger, I had a book in 2000. 16 titled to be in the mouth anger in america now i saw donald trump as a kind of anger impresario he may not have been personally angry but he performed it really well and he became a, a sort of personification of what uh, performative anger looked like but there was behind it a certain element of good humor uh, completely lost on the political left which starting with his inauguration in 2016 just went all out with a kind of hatred campaign for him for the next four years. By the time Kamala Harris was running for the Democratic nomination in 2020, um, she was all on the side of those people who had turned out into the streets to riot in uh, the wake of George Floyd's death in the hands of the police in Minneapolis in uh, earlier part of that year. And, and she took as her campaign song a... Uh, a song that was sort of the inverse of Happy Days or Here Again. It was an all-out anger anthem. Um, she became someone who I think had decided that 
riding the, the anger train was going to be the way to political popularity. On the right, it's a little bit different. It's, it's really very much an anger rooted in uh, resentment and disappointment for being marginalized. All those people that Hillary Clinton called deplorables now find themselves being reclassified by uh, Attorney General Merritt Garland as uh, potential terrorists. Um, this does not sit well with the 75 million or so people in America who voted for Trump. It also doesn't sit very well with people who consider themselves not Trumpists, but some kind of political centrists who deplore seeing the nation divided into two warring camps. So I think we are dealing with wrath, sure. It's mutual wrath. Uh, the division of the country into two almost warring camps is not news. Uh, what I'm trying to drive at is that uh, with all this wrath, we need to go in search of some way to make a workable country out of it, which is clearly not going to be an easy thing to do. Okay, Peter Wood, author of the book, Wrath, America Enraged. Thank you for sharing those insights. We appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. High tech and artificial intelligence are fast becoming a big part of our daily lives. What are the spiritual dangers to us as people of faith? Are we spending more time each day with our smartphones and Alexa than with God, praying, reading His Word, and being His hands and feet? Well, here to share some thoughts is former pastor Wallace Henley. Mr. Henley is a Christian post-exclusive columnist and author of the new book, Who Will Rule the Coming Gods? Wallace, it's a pleasure to talk with you about this. You say this is the existential crisis of our age. So why? What do you see happening to our society and to people of faith? Because just as the church and other parts of our culture are losing the vision of the transcendence of God with our focus on the imminent level, we have these machines emerging and people are beginning to worship those machines. There's actually a, an AI church now. Uh, there's another uh, technology specialist who said if this thing can go a billion times faster than the human brain, this machine, then the only thing that we can call it is God. So just about the time we're forgetting God, forgetting his transcendent majesty and our accountability to it, we're developing these machines that are taking his place. I kind of like having information at my fingertips and the palm of my hand. And I look forward to getting a robot someday that will mow my lawn, maybe even fix the plumbing. Is there anything wrong with that? When should I become morally and spiritually concerned? There's nothing wrong with that, as, as, well, as long as we understand the utility of it. I'm thankful every time I go to a, to a doctor and they have to probe me, and instead of opening my body and doing exploratory surgery, they can stick something inside of me and find out what's wrong. I like that. That's great. That's much better. But what's dangerous is when we forget that God is enthroned, that, that we were made for transcendence. The human being is, is wired for that. St. Augustine said, the human heart was made by God and for God, and only God can fill it. And when we lose that sense, we lose the accountability. The founding fathers understood the importance of transcendence, and they said, we're endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights. And whenever we, we don't understand that, then the state becomes dominant and, and the utility becomes the most important thing. So we've got to recover the sense, the understanding of the transcendence of God, the accountability we have to God. And many parents and grandparents have expressed concerns, of course, 
about the attachment that young people have to their smartphones and technology. I've even seen teens texting one another across a room instead of engaging in verbal conversation. Is this tech creating a less personal world, a less compassionate and human one? What are your thoughts? Certainly it's creating a less human world. We can, we can be remote. We can be afar. We don't, and, and in churches now, uh, one of the things that we've seen in the wake of the pandemic is the fact that many churches are not recovering as fast as they uh, thought they would. Uh, I was in a church recently where only 30% of the people have returned. And so how can there be koinonia? How can there be the fellowship of the saints if we, if we don't understand the spiritual implications of artificial intelligence and put it in the place it should be in? It's in the place of utility and, and advance. I fly airplanes all the time, in airplanes all the time. And so I'm grateful for that uh, utility that we have. But we can't forget the reality of God. It was, it was in the Civil War area, era, actually during the period of slavery, that we forgot the transcendence of God and we made people chattel. We made people simply possessions to have. And there's a sense in which this is repeating in our society now, in which we use people constantly without that fellowship, that bond that God wants us to have in relationship. And in the 1990s, the popular saying, of course, was, what would Jesus do? Would Jesus have used this technology had it been available 2,000 years ago? And how does he want us to respond today, Wallace? Well, I think, I think Jesus probably would not have needed it, but maybe he would have said to his disciples, now, you, when you guys uh, plan, plan your missionary journeys, it's a good idea to look at this map and, and to pull up this screen and, and so forth. I, I, don't, I don't think that he would not have said that, but he personally would not have needed it. You know, I'm thinking also in terms of uh, today and missionaries. I mean, there are electronic Bibles, uh, Bibles that you can listen to rather than read. Uh, does it make us kind of lazy a little bit, let the technology do it rather than us doing it ourselves? Well, it certainly does. And we need to meditate on the Scriptures, not what a particular representation of the Scripture uh, tells us to think about. But here's the positive aspect. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 14, that he will not come back until this gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed in all of the earth as a witness to all the ethnes, all the people groups, and then the end, the telos, the purpose of all things, will come. So I'm excited about what technology can do in helping us get the gospel of the kingdom all over the world, and I'm grateful for that. It's when we allow that thing to become the predominant ruler of our lives instead of being ruled by the lordship of Christ but uh, letting ourselves be ruled by that, uh, going to Alexi uh, for decisions, uh, for fundamental decisions on, on this or that, uh, fine. But when we come to giving ourselves so completely, without knowing it, to the machines, we're in dangerous territory. Okay, all about seeking the Lord, is it not? Wallace Henley, Christian Post exclusive columnist and author of the new book, Who Will Rule the Coming Gods? Thank you for sharing your time and insights. We appreciate it. Thank you. Although 52% of Americans say they want less government, the Biden vaccine mandate is moving forward. There's no backing off for this president and Democratic Party leaders. And just like with the southern border, Afghanistan, energy, and supply chain shortages, we're now heading for another crisis. You see, millions of Americans could face real hardship simply because they don't agree with the government mandate. Airline pilots, medical personnel, police officers, other vital workers are resisting the mandate. In Chicago, Mayor Lori Lightfoot is taking on the police. 
About one third of the Chicago police force is yet to meet the vaccination requirement. So Lightfoot has ordered that they be suspended without pay if they fail to report their vaccination status. Whatever happened to health privacy rights? I guess they don't apply for the men and women in blue who risk their lives every day protecting the people of the Windy City. Folks, with violence skyrocketing and Chicago averaging more than two murders each day, the city cannot afford to dismiss three to 4,000 of its police officers. The city of Seattle is facing a similar crisis. And what about companies like Southwest Airlines? The Southwest Pilots Association is requesting a court injunction to prevent implementation of the company's vaccine deadline. Other Southwest workers are joining the pilots in protest. Our employees have selflessly taken pay cuts, offered portions of their paychecks um, to make ends meet for this company. We are here to encourage Southwest to fight for employees' medical freedoms and the right to choose without losing your job. Bowing to pressure, Southwest now says unvaxxed workers will keep their jobs as the company coordinates, quote, with them on meeting the requirements of vaccine or valid accommodation. And what about religious exemptions? Governments and businesses are learning they must take them seriously. They cannot disregard religious freedom. The U.S. Sixth Court of Appeals recently defended the right of athletes to play sports at Western Michigan University after the university denied their religious exemption requests. In a unanimous decision, the court ruled that WMU violated the First Amendment rights of the collegiate athletes. Another federal appellate court made a similar ruling for nurses in New York State. Airline pilots, healthcare workers, police officers, firefighters. Folks, don't you see that in the name of public health, the vaccination requirement is actually denying Americans their God-given rights and placing the security and economic well-being of our nation at risk? America is supposed to be the land of the free. You cannot instill confidence and trust in the vaccine and in government when you force people to choose between taking it or losing their livelihood. That's not the American way. That's tyranny. Well, that's it from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRB channels, social media, and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.